rather than having made prudent life choices all along, most of us tend to only seek healthful solutions once we've had a scare in the form of a diagnosis or event. This is HealthScape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. In this program, we'll show you the techniques, innovations, and holistic ideas that you can use to put yourself on the path to better health. Now, here is Dr. Trevor Campbell. Welcome to HealthScape on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. I'm your host, Dr. Trevor Campbell. Here at HealthScape, we focus on a holistic approach to health, health resilience, essential added self-care in chronic physical and mental disease, and an awareness of the importance of our behaviors and environments and the impact that these may have on our health and well-being. Today, I'm pleased to have with us Dr. Bruce Hoffman, an integrative or functional medicine physician to show us what a holistic approach to illness may encompass. This approach takes into account the lifestyle and habits of a person, and there is an emphasis on treating the whole person, not just the disease. Therefore, a person's mind, body, soul, and family dynamics, community, and so on, among other, must be taken into consideration to secure recovery and well-being. <clears throat> Dr. Hoffman qualified as a physician in Western Orthodox medicine, but made an early career switch to integrative medicine. His resume is both eclectic and impressive, some of the highlights of which I will summarize. As one of North America's leading integrative doctors, he has studied most of the major disciplines in the broad scope of integrative medicine. His advanced training includes a list too long to go through, quite frankly. In addition to his clinical training, Dr. Hoffman has studied with many of the leading mind, body, and spiritual healers of our times, of our time, including Dr. Deepak Chopra, Paul Lowe, Ramesh Balsikar, John Kabat-Zinn, and John DiMartini, with some of whom he has shared the stage on occasion. As a spokesman for the new medicine, Dr. Hoffman spends a lot of his time educating himself about the latest developments in integrative medicine and sharing this knowledge with the wisdom and wisdom with people from all over the world. As founder of Center for Preventative Medicine, he is now the present medical director of the Hoffman Center for Integrative Medicine. Dr. Hoffman is, a leading, is leading the field of integrative medicine and the emerging field of spirituality and mind-body medicine in Canada. His groundbreaking Seven Stages to Health and Transformation, TM, model for healing will offer you an inspiring vision of health, healing, and self-actualization. And lastly, Dr. Hoffman is a personal friend of many years standing, decades actually. Bruce, welcome to HealthScape. Good to have you here. Yeah, good to talk to you, Trevor. Yeah. So right out, I'd like to start, I know, um, give us a brief description, please, of the work of an integrative physician. And I ask this knowing full well that a brief description is way more challenging than a comprehensive one. Um, yeah, that, there's a lot to that question. Um, as we've sort of discussed previously, um, when we trained as MDs, we trained, or naturopaths for that matter, we trained in what we sort of call, or would Majid Ali, a, um, one of the pioneers in integrative medicine called N squared D squared medicine, which is name of disease and name of drug or surgery. And you and I know from our medical school days where we were in medical school together, we sat for long hours studying reams of, of 
sub-disciplines and how to remember names of symptoms, names of diseases, and then names of drugs and or surgical interventions. Right. And so the, the body was treated as very sort of mechanistic, yes. isolated in space-time, separate from the person, their inner world, their emotions, their relationships, their cultures, their behaviors. And so from a mechanistic sort of biochemical point of view, we were able to determine disease processes and find drugs or surgery to treat them. Now that model, although extremely important for the treatment of acute diseases, has come under a lot of scrutiny lately. And specifically, you know, even in the 2012 New England Journal of Medicine article, they made the point that patients today are far more complex and far more um, dynamic in terms of the multiple, what we now term antecedents, mediators, and triggers. So they present with a symptom complex or a disease complex, and isolating their, their processes, their biochemical processes into an organ system or specialty is no longer applicable. We can't just go, oh, you know, you've got asthma therefore you go see a respirologist you've got to go now and look far beyond that model and try and look at why does that person have asthma and what may be the antecedents the genetics the environmental factors the triggers and what's keeping it going and that now expands our model way beyond just diagnosis we have to now find all these upstream uh, causations and, and mediators and that's now led to a whole new field of medicine called functional medicine, whereby this process is taught. You know, practitioners, whether it be naturopaths or MDs, are taught to look at a far more complex model as to why people present the way they do. And depending on the individual physician's training, mm -hmm. they can expand way beyond just the, the normal N squared, D squared model into complexities which i've used in the seven level model um, or they can just you know go study acupuncture and look at from an acupuncture perspective how does acupuncture play a role in the treatment of asthma along with the ventolin inhaler and the palmer court right, and right. depending on the integration and the skill set of the provider uh, that will depend on how much other knowledge they bring into the, di the diagnostic and therapeutic relationship with the patient. Yeah, that's very interesting, Bruce. You know, while you're talking, I'm thinking, you know, how many, in, I'm talking about orthodox medicine, we have functional hypertension as part of one of the categories of high blood pressure. We have functional pain, which is pain we can't explain. Another word for it, of course, is idiopathic. We don't have an explanation for it. Yeah. And yet we happily treat it a lot. Well, we have to do something, of course. Yeah. Uh, but, um, you, one wonders how many, well, it's almost certain that they haven't been explored properly. Um, um, yeah, there's a, there's, there's a particular phrase, which I forget who coined it. Uh, it is called iatrogenic alignment, which is the the virtuous sense of an MD's status gets aligned with their um, in, uh, their limitations in diagnosis and treatment, <laughs> and so they'll say it's functional, but functional just means we don't know. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. a more, it's a less startling word for the patient as well, of course. And us in integrative medicine, that's our starting point. We don't know. Okay, let's find out. Right, right. Uh, yeah, so certainly. So 
obviously, um, it's well known, certainly among every doctor I know, that orthodox medicine does not do very well with the chronic diseases and probably, well, for reasons you mentioned. We have advances in surgeries, you know, in infectious diseases when we have the right uh, uh, remedy, uh, you know, whether it's... Uh, it's an antibiotic or an antiviral. We do well. Uh, so many acute or sudden onset illnesses that don't last long, we do very well. And this has not been matched by the, um, by the chronic disease outcomes. Where very often, quite frankly, we are cataloging a slow deterioration, despite, despite concerted and genuine and exhaustive efforts to reverse things. Yes. Well, what's not taken into account and somewhat paid lip service to, but it's not really emphasized is the lifestyle of the patient who's sitting in front of you and the complexity of the, the, the uh, triggers and mediators that are keeping the inflammatory or degenerative disease alive. And they multifactorial. I mean, when you start looking and throwing your diagnostic net far and wide, it's extraordinary what you come up with. I mean, everything from electromagnetic field exposures to diet. Now, we've spoken you know, before about how diet has such a rudimentary and elementary role in the expression of chronic disease illness. And people will say, oh, yeah, I need to eat healthy. But what do you actually mean by that? You know, your gut, we know our gut microbiome is rich, richly energy innovated by all these microbes. I mean, there's 10 times more microbes in your gut than you know cells in your body you more gut microbe than you are yourself and that gut microbe you know they they express genetic codes they, they they're part of your gene expression so every time you eat you're either creating a pro or anti-inflammatory response in your body and people don't really get take that very seriously they go oh okay i'll just go gluten-free well, gluten-free is probably one-fiftieth of a thing that you need to do in order to downregulate an inflammatory response, uh, treat gut permeability, treat neurotransmitter balance, and reset your immune system. Gluten, you know, gluten, although it's highly probable that in many cases it induces gut permeability, which leads to an inflammatory response, may be the central culprit, but many people with chronic inflammatory chronic diseases they need to do far more than just get gluten out of their diet they need to go on what we call say for instance a paleo autoimmune antihistamine antioxidant diet which is taking out many things in the beginning in order to downregulate inflammation resetting the immune system healing the gut dysbiosis or imbalanced flora treating the permeability treating the bacterial that leak through the gut stimulating the inflammatory response and that they end up with and down regulate say the mast cell response you know the mast cells are these white cells in the body that are hypervigilant waiting for intruders and whenever they get activated they send out a thousand mediators of inflammation and so if you're eating a high histamine diet you know if you're eating sort of this new craze like um, fermented food, leftover food, uh, foods high in histamine, you're never going to downregulate your pain receptors. It just won't happen. Mm -hmm. You can get all the drugs in the world, but every time you eat, you're triggering a massive inflammatory response. So you've got to 
really address diet and it's not done well it's i've never you know yet to see it being done comprehensively and as extensively as it needs to be mm -hmm. and i've mentioned to you before that often just treating with good clean food uh, but specific to the patient's lab tests gut microbiome and immune responses you can you can radically transform the expression of pain receptors and well-being it's amazing it's amazing now, we know that conventional medicine is generally organ and system-based, and obviously yeah. can interact with each other, yeah. uh, but it can be multi-system, right? But what are the basic crack categories? If you could walk us through that, please, on which integrative medicine is, is uh, based for the benefit of our listeners, a, a broad view, a sort of drone view, if I may use the term. Okay. Uh, what are the basic, what is the word you use? The, the categories, you know, you're not uh, integrated medicine, it's not, not specifically focused on organs and so forth and, 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 and um, systems, but it's looking at the layers that have yeah. to be investigation, if you like. Yeah, um, I've, I use my model that I've developed from my studies with Ayurveda, with uh, Deepak Chopra and uh, my internship in India. I used their model to answer that question. So mm -hmm. Ayurveda or Vedantic knowledge says human beings have layers and levels of experience. And the first level they call the environment is outside of you. So that's level one is environmental influences, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we eat. And our bodies are constantly in exchange with our outer environment. We exchange millions of atoms you know, in every microsecond with the outside world. And so that we've now translated into the world of well-being in terms of food. But on the other side, toxic toxicology, anything that's inflammatory, anything that's environmental, the water, the chemicals, etc., the viruses, the bacteria, everything outside of ourselves that enters into our system is level one. Level two is our physical body, whether it be biochemical, or structural. So we have all sorts of different diagnostic categories in there, the medical sciences, biochemistry, genetics, etc. We also put into that chiropractic, orthopedics, dentistry, because the structure of the jaw is highly uh, influential on many, many systems. Um, and uh, you know, chiropractors do fabulous work sometimes in balancing structural um, subluxations that can affect a nerve, uh, uh, how nerves innervate different organs. So that's level two, structure and biochemistry. And level three is everything to do with energetics or what we call the electromagnetic body. You know, we are electrical beings and uh, the electrical being, our elect electrical substance creates sort of these mini voltages of our cell membranes and it's the integrity of the cell membrane that determines which information gets in and which toxins get out. And if the electrical membrane is set at its low polarization, you have dramatic effects on information passing in and out of the 10 to 30 trillion cells of the body. So that's level three, the electromagnetic body. And that also takes into account the brain, the central nervous system, the peripheral nervous system, and the very often overlooked autonomic nervous system. Ooh. So in my clinic, we spend a lot of time looking at the brain through QEEGs, 
through neuroquant MRIs. Uh, we look at the heart rate variability. We look at uh, sympathetic dominance versus parasympathetic dominance. We do a tremendous amount of work with the autonomic nervous system. Um, that. For the listeners, that's the, the nervous system that's not under one's control. It, it, well, it's said not to be under one's control, but because it acts auto, you know, autonomously, but it can be brought under our conscious control through self-regulation uh, practices. And it's that aspect of our autonomic nervous system that is often highly dysregulated mm -hmm. uh, in trauma. You know, people who present to your office with, with uh, either inherited or early developmental trauma, whether the trauma be one of abuse or one of neglect, um, they have dysregulated autonomic nervous systems. And you can see that objectively on QEEGs, on heart rate variability, um, and biofeedback devices that you can assess body temperature, sweat responses, muscle tension, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, just to diverge for a second, people who present with complex illness who've had extensive trauma, they don't have a window of tolerance or an ability to self-regulate. And so it's almost impossible to go and start treating them structurally level you know, two, or even from a toxicological point of view, level one, when they aren't able to self-regulate their own physiology. Right. You, just, you just don't succeed. You have to, you have to treat the um, dysregulation of the autonomic nervous system before you can start treating downstream. Mm -hmm. Then the level four is everything to do with what we call so-called emotional body, you know, aspects of our emotional life that become dysregulated due to trauma and other events. And that's, we call that level four. There's different brain structures that correlate with this too. The first 10 years of our life, our so-called reptilian brain is developed, where we develop safety with parental regulation, external parental regulation. And if we don't develop safety, we develop fight-flight responses. And we can myelinate our brain accordingly. We can become set in a fight-flight response permanently. And many people with that setting don't even know it. They say, oh, I'm not stressed. I'm not anxious. You do the objective assessments and they through the roof and they go, oh, maybe I'm just set that way. And you say, yeah, probably. And they've, they're very sort of humid sometimes to see that unconsciously they've had a very high stress response their whole life. So that's the first 10 years of life is the reptilian brain. The second 10 years of life, you develop the limbic brain, the emotional brain, the amygdala, which do you learn either fear or safety through um, connection with peer groups. And that can become extremely dysregulated. When we look at QEEGs of some of our patients, uh, sorry, when we look at um, neuroquant uh, MRIs, where we actually pixelate different anatomical structures of the brain and look at them, Sometimes that amygdala, due to a lot of fear and distrust of auto-authority figures or parents, that amygdala can be twice the size of their peer group. It's just hypertrophied. It's gotten bigger because it's constantly being triggered by the fact that they live in a hypervigilant world. Yeah, it makes you think of that line, pick your parents carefully. <laughs> yeah. Well, definitely. The mother's right prefrontal cortex the right part of her brain, um, 
you know, when they look at the child and they develop limbic resonance, the, you know, the child looks to the mother, the mother looks to the child and they, 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 um, they attune to each other through limbic resonance and they develop a sense of trust and safety. Right. That's so crucial to early development. The sense of self is established by good resonance and attunement between mother and child. And the child never really leaves that attunement until they're in their 30s. Parents forget that they are the external sort of regulator of the child's impulses and fears until the child is ready to leave home and has developed the third brain, which is the mammalian cortex which learns to inhibit all the fears and mistrust of the early life. Now, the, the, adult, the adult is the external regulator. It teaches the child to inhibit impulse and fear by creating an equal amount of support and challenge to the child as they grow up and face the world. A good parental influence teaches the child self-regulation. And you can see, you know, from all these experiments, they've done these ASICS adverse childhood experiments, you know, children who are born into trauma and who've had adverse childhood experience have four times more disease processes than those who haven't. It's very obvious, you know, you see it all the time. Right. It also reinforces what uh, the British psychiatrist uh, Bowlby said. He said the most important thing in childhood is for the child to learn basic trust. Basic trust. Yes. Now, yeah. now, Porges has come along lately, Stephen Porges with his polyvagal theory, and he's differentiated the autonomic nervous systems in different components. And he says it's the ventral vagus which creates that sense of trust. And the ventral vagus nerve, the, the parasympathetic relaxation part of our nervous system, that innovates the eyes. It innovates the, you know, the, the, the prosody of the voice. So we create trust. Mm -hmm. through through the way we speak and modulate our voice by the way we smile by the muscles tone around our eyes and that's, guess what we do now we go wear uh, masks and we botox ourselves <laughs> so our entire sense of attunement to trust is not established i had a therapist who phoned me one day and she said you know i had a peculiar experience today i tried to um I tried to work with somebody who was in high trauma, but I couldn't read her because her face was immobile. And then I said, was she Botox? And she said, yeah, she's had tons of Botox. I said, that's why you couldn't regulate with her because there was no movement. There's no trust. There's no, nothing to work with. There's no sense of, of, yes. of, of trust being established just through the facial gaze and the voice, you know? It kind of throw one's GPS, right? <laughs> Your GPS is thrown for a loop. Yeah. And then the fifth level is the ego, the sense of self, you know, the ego, where we develop, it's our sort of conscious mind, where we develop our yeah. self-image, our internal dialogue, our beliefs, our reasoning, our attitudes, our values, our morals, our ethics, and most, most importantly, our value system, and also our defenses. You know, we can have good ego defenses, which get us out of trouble, and uh, or we can have very solidified and very rigid defenses which keep us from being able to shift and change um, our orientation to the world there's a subgroup of psychotherapy called istdp intensive short-term dynamic psychotherapy that actually just deals with defense structures why people can't access the um, emotions that they've suppressed you know, many people present, say, with anxiety, but anxiety actually isn't an emotion. It's a, it's a defense against feeling emotion. And sometimes people are highly defended 
because they, you know, they, they're anxious all the time or they have OCD, but underneath that, there's sadness, there's despair, there's anger, there's rage, there's murderous rage, but they don't let that come out. They offend against it. And they just, they develop this persona or adjust itself that then gets them through the world safely, but as a defense. And often that defense structure will brace them against further trauma, but it'll also cause symptoms in the body, like fibromyalgia and other things. So often, you know, you don't treat fibromyalgia with, you know, guafenacine or some of the drugs they use. Um, you, you actually deal with the defense structure of the individual and send them to an ID, ISTDP therapist, or you send them to a somatic experiencing body trauma-based therapist who deals with self-regulation in the body. You don't approach the problem at the level of the problem. Um, yeah, which again brings us back to neuroplasticity or the brain's ability, central nervous system's ability to change itself under certain conditions if one doesn't learn certain behavioral processes one cannot benefit from it that's right so they yeah. they face life at an enormous disadvantage and of course i mean yeah right. yeah and, and they and 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 our traditional system doesn't take into account these layers and levels that that mm -hmm. show up you know you go to a pain clinic and you know you'll get all the meds and the injections, but and you'll probably get to go to practice maybe mindfulness meditation, maybe, or you get to see a CBT therapist. Mm -hmm. But that wow. often doesn't get anywhere close to where the actual uh, antecedent and trigger of the pain originated. You've got to expand that model far beyond what we now presently are using um, in our pain clinics, etc. And it's long been known in chronic pain that many of people who many people who suffer from it have a a, a very strong history of uh, childhood abuse issues. Um, no doubt, no doubt. You know they brace against the pain uh, psychologically and physically because their innocent self, you know, in order to survive, because there was no resonance with the external parent, um, had to developed hypervigilance distrust and braced against further trauma you know and that's the pattern that gets established throughout life and either you know it can lead to dysregulation of the body but sometimes it gets solidified into a personality disorder and a personality disorder is almost immutable in many ways in that it's so hard to treat people with personality disorders. Now, mood disorders are different, but personality disorders are fixed ways of being in the world that are yes, sort of yes. structured and difficult to penetrate. You know, you know, DBT was developed to treat borderline personality disorder, but not that successfully, I might say. That's the dialectical, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, and, and one also sees in personality disorders a resistance to accepting treatment and one wonders if this isn't because it's such a crucial defense even though it may not be valued by others it's got the person thus far so to speak it, 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 yeah uh, uh, cal shared the great union analyst said there's two types of defenses there's ego defenses which freud sort of enunciated you know and then there's soul defenses. Yes. Soul, soul defenses when there's a last vestige of innocence left and the person will not allow anybody close. There's such a high resistance to that last innocence being sort of, sort of 
penetrated. Right. That, and it's all pre-verbal. All of these defenses develop at a very young age. So it's not conscious, you know, it's unconscious. So a soul defense uh, usually implies a very much deeper um, trauma and a much, much more difficult um, therapeutic pathway ahead. Um, it's very different from just ego defenses, which can be penetrated through ISTDP and other therapies. Right. So uh, level six is the so-called unconscious aspects of ourselves, our, um, our so-called soul, if you will. The first half of life is ego-based. We're out there in the world doing battle. And then the second half of life is more you know, integration of those parts of ourselves we left behind in the pursuit of partner, wealth, money, knowledge, and procreation. And so that's considered the soul. Uh, Jung coined the term, you know. Or like the bards and seers will tell us, we spend the first half of our life trying to be the same and the second half different. Yeah, yeah. We, we, try, and, we try and bring home Yes. Parts of ourselves we left behind in the pursuit of outer uh, gains, outer, you know. A return to self, really. A return to self, a more integrated self. You know, Carolyn Mace, I think, says we, we come home to uh, a more integrated self. And it's so true, and one, one, one sees it, you know, in, in one's peers. Um, we're going to need to take a short break. Um, it's Dr. Trevor Campbell speaking to Dr. Bruce Hoffman on holistic approaches in medicine on um, Voice uh, America Health and Wellness channel, uh, channel. We'll be right back. Are you looking for a path to better health rather than just avoiding disease? A good deal depends on your environment and overall behaviors. On Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell, we focus on the daily techniques that can help with chronic pain, addiction, trauma, and disease. You can take a more active approach to taking control of your health and your life. Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell can be heard every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. If you have a question or comment about the show, please send an email to host at trevorcampbellmd.com. Now back to the show. Okay, we're back. It's Dr. Trevor Campbell with Dr. Bruce Hoffman discussing holistic approaches to treatment. Um, we're on Healthscape, Voice of America Health and Wellness Challenge. Um, Bruce, if I may just ask, um, a lot of people find the term soul problematic and not necessarily for, on a religious basis, but on a definition basis, because it's a word we use used in culture, literature, arts. Um, what, what would you, you be, what would your explanation be to a patient who says, what do you mean by soul? Not, not in any aggressive way or, you know, but just they, they want to get close to where you're at when you, when you use the term. Yeah, um, yeah, it's used in a way that, you know, has led to a lot of sort of new age glibness, and I appreciate that. But Jung, Jung said, Carl Jung, the great psychoanalyst, turn of the century, he said, you know, we've got this outer ego-based world, which is in space-time, but behind that 
sort of space-time ego-based world, there's a, there are aspects of ourselves which are unconscious. You know, he called them these unconscious influences, which he said don't really surface until the second half of life. Mm-hmm. And he went so far to say is that the the structure of the psyche is, you know, actually objective. You can actually objectively um, determine aspects of our unconscious self that um, you can actually objectively define them. And he, but the thing is about the the um, unconscious self is that it doesn't speak to us through our conscious thought process. Mm-hmm. It speaks to us through symbols and synchronicities that whispers to us, particularly in his world, through dream imagery. Right. And so he said, underlying all of our outer behaviors are our own individual course authentic um, instinctual selves which we often leave behind when we develop provisional selves to be in the world Um, but that always wants to come back we want to be more authentically ourselves as we age and so we get whisperings from the unconscious through dream symbols and he says they often express archetypal images of how other people over eons have kind of engaged in the story of life, this great metaphor of life, if you will. And he, you know, analysts use dream, dream analysis to try and um, help a client through what is being asked of them in the second half of life that they haven't yet looked at. Mm -hmm. And I also use the second half of life and I use symptoms teleologically. I use symptoms to often show me the path as to what's being asked of this patient in this when they present that they haven't yet looked at. And some, when patients see symptoms as sometimes speaking to them as what they need to integrate because they've left parts of themselves behind, Um, they often get a deeper meaning to their illness and they start to see the necessity to integrate parts that they haven't, um, they haven't yet looked at. You know, we have from, we know from Myers-Briggs typology, we have different ways of being in the world. We're extrovert, introvert, thinking, feeling, etc. And sometimes when we develop a particular way of being in the world, which we would call a more, um, um, we have a positive way of being in the world and we develop parts of our psyche that are uh, sort of extroverted and thinking function. In the second half of life, we may have to go back and look at our feeling function and our introverted parts of ourselves. We may have to integrate the less, like if you're right-handed, you may have to sort of develop a relationship with the left-handed aspect of yourself. If you are very thinking, maybe you need to develop your feeling function. And very often symptoms will guide you into how you integrate a part of yourself that you haven't even looked at before. Mm -hmm. Symptoms often do that. They often, they stop a person in their tracks. You know, I had a patient recently, a very high powered lawyer who um, developed uh, heart disease and he had no risk factors, not one. No, none of the traditional risk factors. It's quite uncanny. But what he did say was that, you know, he was very successful as a lawyer. He was very thinking type, very practical, very sensate. 
but he didn't have a relationship with his spouse. He's, him and his wife had a utilitarian arrangement. They slept in separate bedrooms. He wasn't really related to it, but they worked out an arrangement. And then I, I suggested to him, you've got no risk factors for heart disease. You've got a coronary calcium score of 400. You've got 50% occlusion of your left main coronary artery. Maybe your symptoms are telling you to develop an aspect of your emotional heart because you're not related to the feminine aspect of who you are. You've been out in the world, you know, as a masculine male, achieving a lot, wealth and fame and fortune as a high-powered lawyer. But you're not connected to anybody. You see people as objects to manipulate. Maybe you need to develop a feeling function. Right. And he, in all his great wisdom, he just sort of, he just completely got it. And he accepted that as a risk factor for his heart disease. And I, to this day, I mean, I've just started working with him. But to this day, I still believe that that's going to be the central metaphor a message from his soul, if you will, from this other aspect, mm -hmm. the unconscious aspect that's pointing him where he needs to be in order to heal, you know, what he needs to address. Yeah, I, I deal with spirituality. That's a good, that's a good uh, rationale you've given, Bruce. I, I deal with spirituality uh, in, in um, chronic pain treatment, and I, I try to avoid the word soul because even after thinking it through four years, I, I get tired up quite easily mentally uh, on that subject. So what I talk about is spirituality, and I'm saying the soul is that faculty we have that can appreciate spirituality. And I just say all definitions about spirituality has, has two defining characteristics, meaning, like the meaning of life, uh, where meaning becomes important, and the desire to connect with something greater than oneself. And it could be one's higher self or one's improved self. And that's the best I can do. But I do like the angle you come from. Um, I, sep I separate spiritual from soul. Yes. Level seven is the spiritual level. Level six is the soul level. And the reason why that's done, and it's, that's done in Vedantic wisdom. That's, and I, when I thought about it, I was able to separate them. The soul, the soul can go from personal soul, the personal unconscious, mm -hmm. to the archetypal, to the mythical. So there's aspects sort of that drift off into sort of symbolism and archetypes, but they, they, they're still connected to your, somewhat to your personal identity, whereas spirit is that which is transcendent to you. Yes. And that's how I separate, and that's how Vedanta does that too. And so in ancient Greek temples, they used to have, these temples were, had a, they were open to the sky. So they, you know, and they would say that once you sort of settle into your sort of um, your meditative practices, you need to open up to something that's bigger than yourself. Mm -hmm. It's not of you because the overwhelm, you know, the, 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 determine you know our insignificance against the backdrop of infinity is rather overwhelming and so when we surrender to there's something other than us you know our ego is not the center of the universe no, the evidence no. is rather overwhelming so we just surrender to something bigger than ourselves and in 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 um in 
in sort of religious traditions, they call that's a different state of consciousness. It's not this normal state of consciousness. You know, we have what's called a Satori experience when we when we open up to something that's bigger than and we get flooded with with in a way of seeing where we actually experience ourselves as interconnected across space-time. And that's such a that's a different state of consciousness. And you know, the quantum theorists say we light, we all light that step down into matter. And when we as matter surrender to something bigger than ourselves as light, um, we experience the eternity of space-time, which there's no there's no David Baum called it implicate and explicate order. There's lots of theoretical models around it. Um, that's seven. That's the spiritual self. The the soul is something that's still got traits and little whispers of something of of us in it, you know. But it's unconscious. It's unconscious. But would that not be the receptor you like, if you like, or the transmitter of spirituality as a conduit? Well, um, connection with spirituality. That was my point. Um, well, I just want to. There's there was there was. Um, They've determined um, that the tubulin in the brain is actually the anatomical area where light gets transmitted into matter. It's in the tubulin of the brain. And the tubulin is very easily destroyed by external environmental toxins, particularly mercury. And so a lot of mercury diseased patients are you know, they're psychotic, they're mad, they disconnected from their higher selves, they disconnected from something more than themselves. And that's an interesting sort of concept that's been postulated. Anyway. So what happens when you get someone with multiple symptoms that clearly has work that needs work at several levels? How do you approach that? How do they stay motivated? And I'm, I mean, this must take multiple visits, surely, over, over extensive time. Or yeah. Manage it. Well, first of all, I can't do what I do under traditional healthcare rules and systems because we allowed five to 15 minutes per appointment. So obviously, this model can't oh, exist. Under, yeah. yeah. So I do initial two hour appointments. And I take a history and I'm looking for symptoms, diseases. I read all the specialist letters, all the lab work, all the special investigations. And then I have a system of going through all the, um, looking for antecedents, genetic inheritances, and then triggers, things that may have triggered their symptoms at which their timelines of symptom presentation. And then mediators, things that which may be keeping them sort of dysregulated or ill or symptomatic. So that's a two-hour intake. And that's then followed by the diagnostic testing. Now, I do extensive traditional diagnostic testing because being an MD, I can still access traditional, uh, never, never bypass traditional diagnoses. You want to go through them. Um, so I run a series of traditional tests, but then we use the world of uh, functional medicine lab testing. And that's, and that's where I get a lot of my data for um, triggers of illness. And I also get a lot of data of how, where they are on the spectrum of optimization of biochemistry. 
does, you know, traditional labs tell us disease or no disease, but functional tell us where are they on the spectrum of optimization. And that's where the, that's where the jewel lies is in all those labs. And then once you've done the diagnostic workup, um, there's a, a, actually before the diagnostic workup, there's a physical exam. And in the diagnostic workup, I often send to dentists for Panorex x-rays or um, uh, cone beams. I send for brain e QEGs. I send for MRIs. I get uh, um, uh, people or building biologists to go into the homes and look at electromagnetic field exposures. And then I use the nutritionist extensively to look at the nutritional processes. I send for sleep studies because sleep is huge. Sex, I send to exercise physiologists to look at the exercise routines. And so that's all the diagnostic workup. And uh, I also send to um, a number of people, particularly one called Mark Walden, to look at family systems for inherited family trauma and early developmental trauma, and particularly looking for breaks in the bond, you know, early tra trauma that influences physical symptoms. And that's the next piece. And then therapeutics, then we do therapeutics, and that's extensive, and it takes a year or two to get somebody better, usually, if they apply themselves. <laughs> And if they have salience, if they can see the connection to what they have, mm -hmm. and they don't have ever one thing, they always have like variables. Yeah, lots of things. And if they could, if they, we use a lot of educational tools and materials to orientate them to the triggers and the what they need to do to fix their their cellular biochemistry. We've. You know, medicine's advanced quite dramatically since Robert Naveau proposed his cell danger response theory, where he said that we only as good as our mitochondria are. And our mitochondria are the first sort of canaries in the coal mine that when they start to see toxicity, they actually shut down and release their intracellular contests, which become pro-inflammatory. And so we now have labs that can measure the whole spectrum of mitochondrial uh, competence. And most of the patients I work with take six months to nine months uh, to, to reestablish mitochondrial health and right. get out of the so-called stuck cell danger response. For the benefit of some of the listeners, the mitochondria are those cellular structures that are responsible for energy generation. Yeah, you take your ma macro and micronutrients, transform them into energy, ATP. Right. Yeah. You can measure ATP production. You can measure mitochondrial destruction. You can measure it now. We, we, we certainly covered a lot. And uh, coming towards the end of the uh, session, uh, Bruce, I'd, I'd like to um, ask you, um, what is the best advice you've ever been given in your field of integrative medicine? The one thing that really you crosses your mind every day um and that's a difficult one but <laughs> i like to ask it anyway yeah um well the, the oh, three things three things if, if it's three. yeah yeah no, the thing that i get reminded of from time to time is that um i'm only as effective in the therapeutic encounter as i am able to stay 
as so you know attuned to myself as humble as i can be uh, as a healer uh, in limbic resonance and attuned to my patient's experience and not go into a therapeutic encounter as hero you know if a doc doctors like to occupy the hero archetype <laughs> with all the knowledge and awareness that they have and um you get you get uh, tricked by that and and humbled just the other day i <laughs> was noticeably in the hero mode and got irritated by a patient's insistence upon something and i had to phone back and apologize later and i said i'm sorry <laughs> because I definitely was occupying the hero archetype. It's so you stumble um, as you move into, you know, a, a therapeutic relationship with your patient. So for me, it's, it's staying attuned to what I don't know, what I do know, and doing the best I can to attune through limbic resonance, that part of the brain, uh, the limbic brain, to my patient's experience and not, not short circuit, just really see and hear what who and where they're coming from in the complexity of their experience because they very often they're not seen or heard they weren't seen or heard by their parents they're not seen or heard by the hero doctors they get told all sorts of things like functional you know functional pain and this is one of the greatest tragedies being imposed on patients is this functional thing that people talk about it's just i've yet to see anybody with a functional diagnosis they have real causation and it's multi-layered. The doctors are practicing iatrogenic alignment. They just don't know. They've reached the virtuous limit of their, of, you know, they have virtue and they've reached the limit of their knowledge base and they call it functional. That's, that's a misservice that we place and project onto patients. So in answer to your question is, is to try my best to stay aligned and attuned to my patient experience without imposing my hero archetype and agenda on them that I'm all knowing and they're all sick. Because whenever I encounter a patient, I'm looking for the part of them that's not sick, that's not identified with their illness, that can evoke the healing response, that has intent, that can be inspired to get better. And if I'm not attuned to that part of them, I'm not helping them. You know, I'm just seeing them as all sick and I'm all healthy. That's a, that's a one-sided relationship that um, is, it's not helpful. Yeah. Now that's interesting. It's the art of keeping uh, out of the way of a solution, really, if one thinks about it, right? Because solutions are there as one gains more information. Well, the caduceus, the symbol of our profession is, you know, it's two snakes, wisdom. So we need a, a knowledge. So we need the knowledge of our training and we need the wisdom to, to, to stay humble to what we don't know and to stay connected, you know, with the patient's experience. When patients get seen, it's unreal. You know, if they've got trust and they've seen the therapeutic alliance is is so much more potent than if they just get talked down to and told things and whatever. Yeah. And do you have what um, any insight or inspirational nugget you care to leave with us as listeners? Um, it doesn't have to be about you. It can be about health. It can be about your field. Um, just never. Um, Never, never, never settle for a diagnosis. 
as soon as you label something with a name, you shut down inquiry and you're not looking at the multiple triggers and mediators of what produced that in the first place. Diseases don't fall out of the sky. There's always antecedents, mediators, and triggers. So there's always multiple causation. So don't label yourself with a diagnosis and then just become passive. Stay, stay inquisitive and stay as a patient advocate for your own well-being and move from the disease model to the you know, optimal health and well-being model. It's possible. People do it all the time. Yeah, this, the story doesn't end with the diagnosis. No, it's... it's Part of, 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 of a lot of uh, self-help uh, as well, uh, as far as reasonably can be done. Um, Bruce, Dr. Hoffman, uh, I thank you very much for appearing on the, on the show. It, it seems like we don't have the time to discuss everything I would like to. So hopefully you'll be back sometime. Um, I just want to thank you for your participation. It's been a pleasure. No, lovely, Trevor. Nice to, nice to speak to your audience. And thanks for inviting me on. It's great. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Uh, Dr. Hoffman's um, website will be linked to the information on presentation, along with two links of uh, talks that he has given in the past. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to Healthscape with Dr. Trevor Campbell. We hope you'll join us again next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time, or listen anytime on demand on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a healthy week.